Good morning. One of my friends leaned over to me when we were singing that and said, that's your favorite song, isn't it? It is. It is my favorite hymn. If you have your uh, Bibles, you'll want to turn to Psalm 46. Psalm 46 is, as you'll see, written uh, by Isaiah or Hezekiah, and it was Martin Luther who had the hymn we just sang. He was looking at Psalm 46 when he wrote it. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, uh, we ask that you would guide our understanding of Psalm 46. Father, we're thankful for this psalm, a most beloved psalm by many of us, a psalm about you, the God of the possible. And Father, because of you, we want to praise, we want to worship, we want to thank, for you are worthy of all. You are the God of the possible. Help us to see that again, afresh, anew, in Psalm 46. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, the psalm we, song we just sang was written by Dr. Martin Luther. And many historians credit Dr. Martin Luther with the final light that led to the Protestant Reformation. Certainly, the Reformation was at least 300 years in the making, if not more. Prior to Dr. Luther nailing his 95 thesis to the Wittenberg church door on October 31, 1517. But after Dr. Luther nailed those theses and after they were translated into the common languages, after they spread all over Europe, understand that Martin Luther was in a fair amount of trouble with the universal church. It was in 1520 or 1521 when he was tried as a heretic at the Diet of Worms. That's when he said, I cannot, I shall not recant unless you show me by God's word where I have erred. After the Diet of Worms, you may remember he was returning back to Wittenberg when he was kidnapped. Dr. Luther was kidnapped by his own friends who recognized that on the trip back, he would most assuredly be murdered. And so they kidnapped him and took him to the castle of Wartburg. And there he went incognito for the next two years under a false name and disguised himself. He was essentially in the witness protection. He was a man that was wanted. And during those two years, he translated the Bible into the vernacular for his people, into German. Even after those two years were up, understand that Dr. Luther did not dare leave Germanic territory because he knew if he left Germanic territory, he would be put to death. 
You can imagine the pressure on this man and the threats that he received on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. It eventually attacked his health, and by 1526 and 27, he regularly wrote things like, this last week I have been in hell. I cannot imagine I will be able to live much longer. The depression, the discouragement, the despondency, the anxiety that hit this man's life was great. It then went physiological and he had all sorts of intestinal problems. He was a man quickly dying. It was about that time that the second outbreak of the Black Plague hit Germany or what would become Germany in 1871. Now we hear the Black Plague and Perhaps we know something of it, but I doubt we understand the horror of the Black Plague. The first outbreak of the Black Plague in the 14th century, the latter part of the 1300s, historians estimate that somewhere between 75 and 200 million Eurasians died. 40 to 50 percent of Europe died. If you have a family of five, two or three likely died. That was the Black Plague. And the second outbreak, which proved to be much less lethal than the first, we know that historically. They didn't. They were living in the midst of it. You can imagine the horror they felt when a second outbreak hit the Germanic areas. And at the time, Martin Luther was the pastor of the Wittenberg Church. And he was a professor at the University of Wittenberg. And the population of Wittenberg began to decline as multiple people left the Germanic areas. And many encouraged Martin Luther and his wife Katie and their one-year-old son Hans, leave the area before you contract the Black Plague. But Luther and Katie prayed about it. They not only did not leave the area, they opened up their home as a hospital to those who contracted the Black Plague. Katie was pregnant with their second child. Their first child, age one, Hans, contracted the Black Plague, but by God's incredible mercy, he lived. And time and time again, in the midst of this scenario, Dr. Luther turned to Psalm 46. It was his favorite psalm. It happens to be my favorite psalm as well. Let me read some of the words that we just sang. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he, amid the flood of mortal ills, the black plague prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gift are ours through him 
who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, that's mortal life also, the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. That was Dr. Luther's interpretation of Psalm 46. Let's go ahead and read the text. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth be removed, though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, say la. There is a river whose stream may glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. Therefore, she will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, and the kingdoms melt. The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob. He is our fortress. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow, he shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I'll be exalted among the nations. I'll be exalted on the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob. He is our refuge. Say, law. Let's consider the background of this incredible psalm. I think when we get the background, the impact of the psalm is even greater. We're going back to 701 BC. The big bad bully on the block is Assyria, the king is Sennacherib. We don't understand what the name Sennacherib means. It would make full-grown women and men tremble. Their knees collapse. This was a man that ravaged, raped, pillaged, and destroyed. Historians describe his army as a locust that comes across the land, devouring everything in its path. Sennacherib is the last individual you want coming against you. Sennacherib was a builder. He built the great city of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian monopoly empire. He had hanging gardens just like Babylon, just like Nebuchadnezzar before. He had made a 50-kilometer-long canal, 30-mile-long canal, bringing fresh water into the city of Nineveh. He had restored the arts. But more than anything else, Sennacherib was a man of war. He was a man of destruction. He was a man of murder. He was probably one of history's most vilest Monarchs, kings, emperors, destroyers. And in 701, he turned his attention onto a true tribe nation, Judah. He surrounded the capital of Judah, Jerusalem. 
You can imagine, humanly speaking, there is no hope for Judah. They are outmanned, outgunned. There is absolutely no hope. But the king of Judah is not relying on humanity. He's relying on God. You remember after the divide of the kingdom of Israel, the ten northern tribes retained the name Israel, had 20 kings, all of them evil. The two southern tribes were called Judah. They had 19 kings and one very ungodly queen, Athaliah. Out of their 20 monarchs, only six were godly. Scripture is unequivocal as to who was the most godly monarch out of the 40 of Israel and Judah. His name is Hezekiah. Scripture is very clear that Hezekiah had no rival before and no rival after as someone who sought the Lord. And with his city surrounded, he struck on a strategy that he didn't learn at West Point. He immediately called for two prophets, godly prophets, authors of Scripture. He called for Micah. He called for Isaiah or Isaiah. And together they came and together they turned to the Lord. And you remember the message of Isaiah and Micah. They said, fear not, for this man sent a cherub, has made a mockery of God. He has turned his back on the Lord. He has called for the worship of false gods. His, his name actually is partly a name for a moon god. He is in every way an idolater. And God will vindicate his people. God will vindicate Judah. Listen to how Scripture describes Hezekiah. This is the way we would love to be described. 2 Kings 18, 5-7. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that there was none among him like all of the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. He held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went, he prospered him, and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. Now early on, understand that like every monarch, Hezekiah sent tribute, monetary tribute to Sennacherib. But unlike almost any other monarch, Hezekiah refused to worship Sennacherib as a god or to worship the false gods of Assyria. And because of that, Sennacherib sent his general, a man named Rabshakeh, I can never remember it, Rabshakeh. And you remember what Rabshakeh does. He comes against the, the walls of Jerusalem. And he begins to call up, hey, you on the walls, don't listen to Hezekiah. You will eat dung and you will drink urine. That's pleasant. And if you listen to Hezekiah, you will be destroyed. And he cried out over and over 
and over again. And then Sennacherib sent a letter into the gates, into the walls of Jerusalem, outlining how he would pillage and rape and destroy and ravage the city if they did not open the gates. And do you remember what the king did? He took the letter and he went into the house of God. He went into the temple of God and he laid the letter on the altar and he bowed before God and he begged God to show up. He begged the God of the possible to show up, to do what only God can do. And he called on the God of the possible to meet his people, to protect his people, and to send Sennacherib away. That's the God he worshipped. That's the God he honored. That's the God he thanked. And that's the God we serve. You remember what God did. The next morning when the Jews awoke when the sun rose. They looked out at the mass of Assyrian army and the angel of the Lord had taken 185,000 of their lives. And Sennacherib was defeated and God's people were vindicated. The God of the possible had shown up. And in response, it was most likely Isaiah or Hezekiah who penned Psalm 46. I want to go through it very slowly. And as we go through, I think with that background, we'll see that background among the words of this great psalm. God is a refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth be removed, though the mountains fall into the midst of the sea, Though its waters roar and foam, though its mountains tremble at its swelling, say la. Now, I made a big deal of Selah three times, didn't I? Selah is a breathing mark. It's given to us in the Psalter to slow us down so that we don't go racing through the text. Three times we're told to stop to think, to meditate, to apply it to our lives. It may be, it may be this morning that that you, I, we need these words. Maybe we're in financial strait or relationship difficulty. Maybe somebody is coming against us. Maybe it's an employer or a former friend Maybe it's a family member. Maybe we're despondent in despair and there's trials and tribulations. Maybe there's illness, sickness, and we need this text. And three times we're told to slow down and remember who we're talking about. We're talking about the God of the possible, the God who can do all things. He's the one we praise. He's the one we worship. He's the one we thank. God is our refuge. A phrase mentioned repeatedly in Scripture. He's our refuge and our strength, a very present help in times of trouble. Times of trouble actually mean tight spaces. 
It means the places that society pushes us in between the rocks and shoves us in and surrounds us. And maybe we have tight spaces right now in our life. And maybe it's emotional trauma that we're struggling with or fears or anxieties or despair or despondency. And we can feel all of life caving us in. And the text wants us to remember who we serve. We serve the God who is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. No wonder we praise Him. No wonder we worship Him. No wonder we thank Him. Who do you go to? Who do I go to during times of difficulty? Maybe we go to a parent. That's often a very good place to go. They've walked before us. They're more experienced, more wise. And if they've been walking with Jesus for any length of time, they, they can build insight into our life and our situation. Maybe we go to a Christian counselor. I think that's a wise place to go. Or, or maybe we go to a trusted friend who is a Christ follower. All of these are really good places, but the first place, not the last, is to go to God. So what does Hezekiah do? He calls two authors of Scripture, Isaiah and Micah, into his presence, and he goes into the temple, and he comes before the Lord, and he turns to God. His situation is hopeless, and yet he serves the God of the possible. And so he turns to the God of the possible and asks the God of the possible to do what only God can do, to show up in a way that only God can show up. And that's what we need to do in times of difficulty and challenge in our lives. I love the way Psalm 91, 2, using a very similar Hebrew word for refuge, it says this, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress my God in whom I trust. God is trustworthy. God is powerful. God is good. That's the combination we read about in Psalm 61 and 62. God being all powerful and God being all good. That's the combination I want to call upon. That's the God who is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. Let's continue on in verses 4 and 5. There's a river whose stream may glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. It's the 8th century B.C. You and I are in the walls of Jerusalem. Sennacherib's army we know it's several hundred thousand strong. They've surrounded the city. What are we most afraid of? Well, if it's Hollywood, we're most afraid of the catapult, which is going to lob large rocks at the wall to crumble it and large walks over the wall to crumble the houses. But it's not Hollywood, and that's the wrong answer. Maybe we're most afraid of the arrows tipped in tar and dipped in fire 
and thousands cascading over the walls all at once. And that would be terrifying, and it's reality. But that's not what we're most afraid of. Every walled city was most afraid that they would run out of fresh water. That's what we're afraid of. If you run out of fresh water, you live 24, 48, maybe 72 hours. Maybe. And you're done. If you've been to Israel, you've probably been in Hezekiah's tunnel. You've walked through the tunnel. It was chiseled underneath the city walls from the Gihon Spring. It's 1,750 feet long. It's a third of a mile. The spring bubbles up outside the walls. It's the freshest, cleanest, most refreshing water you can ever imagine. It's beautiful. And it bubbles up and, and it goes in this, this chiseled out tunnel underneath the city walls. A third of a mile. And if you've been to Israel with me, you've walked through that with the, the water bubbling at your feet and rushing by you in this tunnel, a third of a mile, total darkness, no light. As we sing, a mighty fortress is our God. And you get to the other side. Who led Hezekiah to chisel that tunnel prior to send a cherub surrounding the city? It was God. That's what verses 4 and 5 is referring to. It's referring to the river whose stream made glad the city of God, made glad the city of Jerusalem, the holy habitation of most God, high God. God is in the midst of her. God knew what was going to happen as he knows what is always going to happen. And he led Hezekiah to chisel that tunnel prior to the siege. What a great God. The God of the possible. The God we worship. The God we thank. We praise him even more in verses 6 and 8. The nations rage, the kingdom totters. He utters his voice, the earth melts. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolation on the earth. Even though Sennacherib rages, and even though the nations around him totter, when God utters his voice, the enemy melts. Come, behold the works of the Lord. Remember what he's done in the past. Go to your prayer closet. Go to your prayer journals. Think back at what God has done in your past and in the past of humanity. And when we meditate on what God has done in the past, it gives us confidence for the present and it gives us confidence for the future. That's what the text is telling us to do when we find ourselves in a tight space, when society has pushed us into the cleft of a rock, when we're despairing of life itself, when illness or relationship difficulty hits, we turn to God not as the last resort, as the first. And we remember what he's done in the past. And that gives us confidence for the present and the future. Nine and ten. He makes wars cease 
to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear. He burns the chariot with fire. It doesn't matter what Sennacherib throws at God. Be still and know that I am God. I'll be exalted among the nations. I'll be exalted in the earth. Wars come, wars go. Weapons are fearful, but they are temporal. We serve a God who is ageless, boundless, who is present. He is imminent. He is sovereign over all. He has all power, all knowledge. He's present everywhere simultaneous. That's the God that you and I serve. He's the God of the possible. And whatever we're going through, we can turn as followers of Christ to God, knowing that he has our back. And he will do ultimately what is best for his glory and our betterment. That's the God of the possible. That's the God we serve. Maybe we're here today and we say, well, all right. I believe that God might answer certain individuals' prayers, but not mine. Maybe he listened to Sarah or Ruth or Deborah or Elizabeth, or Mary. Maybe Isaiah, or Jeremiah, or Elisha, or Elijah, but not mine. Do you notice that there was one phrase that was repeated twice in the prayer, verse 7 and verse 11? The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Say, La. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Say, la. Don't rush. Think. Think through this, Jeff. Don't rush through the text. The God of Jacob is our refuge. It's not what I would expect God to write. I might Go for Abraham, father of many nations, or Isaac, the promised child, or Joseph and his coat of many colors, but not Jacob. Forgive me, Jacobs, here. I know that you are outstanding men, but this Jacob wasn't. This Jacob was a swindler, a liar, a deceiver. That's what this Jacob is. This Jacob is not a superstar. We're not talking about Sarah. We're not talking about Elizabeth. We're not talking about Ruth. We're not talking about Deborah. We're not talking about Esther. We're not talking about Mary. We're not talking about Isaiah. We're not talking about Jeremiah or Elijah or Elijah. We're talking about the God of Jacob. That's the God of the non-superstar. That's the one who is with us. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob, he is our fortress. I know this last comment need not be made, but I'm going to make it anyway. It's too obvious. You already got it. But who is the Lord of hosts referring to? 
Well, I think in this case, it's referring to the angel of the Lord. You remember him? He's the one in 1 Kings 18.35 that struck 185,000 Assyrians dead. Who is the angel of the Lord? He's Jesus. In the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is Jesus. He's the pre-incarnate Christ. Jesus is the one who has our back. Jesus is the one who cares for us. The one who's coming back, Jesus. The one by whom we are saved, that Jesus. The name above every name. That the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That Jesus has our back. He's not a genie in the bottle. We don't rub with three prayers and he answers. He doesn't promise to take us around the trial, but he promises to take us through. That's the Jesus. That's Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. We need not fear. He's the God of the possible. He's the God we worship. He's the God we praise. He's the God we thank. Let's pray. Father God, I, I thank you for Psalm 46. It's the psalm of the underdog. It's the psalm when we find ourselves in despair and discouragement and despondency. It's a psalm we need, and we're thankful for it. God, you are the God of the possible. Help us to turn to you not as a last resort, but as a first. To praise you, to worship you, to exalt you. You are worthy. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.